Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. Happy New Year! It's the first episode of this new year, 2024. We are on January 11 already, and you are listening to episode 190, 139, not 190 yet, uh, but we're going to get there, possibly this year. Um, of the Consumer Podcast, please do rate us favorably on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to support us, you can make a donation by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, where you can donate in fiat or cryptocurrency. Um, and uh, as you can hear in the background, uh, we are not using Billy Joel's pressure anymore. Uh, I think it was about time to phase that out before they catch us on the copyright there. Uh, so uh, uh, good to uh, get some changes in. And we have... Uh, uh, a regular guest in this week's uh, podcast episode. We have Peter Klepper, the editor-in-chief of the Brussels Report, with uh, whom we talked about the look ahead for 2024 in Europe. Uh, what can we expect from the European elections? What does a shift towards the right mean for a new European Parliament and trade policy? And then, of course, many of the environmental policies will be under threat as uh, as a uh, shift towards the right uh, is expected in the polling numbers. But all of that we will discuss with Peter Klepper, so you can hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Fun Police uh, will be extended for another season. So if you haven't seen that yet, head over to the Fun Police channel on your podcast platform wherever you are listening to uh, this podcast right now subscribe if you haven't done so already and hit the notification bell so you never miss a new episode also in this episode we're talking about the uh, agricultural protests by farmers in germany and uh, cats in amsterdam will be asked to be home before dark uh, and even wear a bell so a uh, bit of a bit of a funky story there to start the day uh, and uh, yeah let's get going the farmers in Germany are not happy about increased taxes that the German government has been suggesting. Uh, let's listen into Euronews reporting on the issue. German farmers drove their tractors to Berlin's Brandenburg Gate on Monday after hearing that they'd no longer receive a tax break for using diesel. The government needs to plug a 17 billion euro hole in its budget and has targeted the agricultural sector for not converting to cleaner energy, namely electricity. So as per the German government, uh, or the finance ministry rather, uh, it will in the future not be eligible uh, for farmers to get a tax cut on or tax exemption on both agricultural uh, products, uh, farm machinery and so on, uh, and the diesel that it needs to power them. That will raise about uh, 1 billion euros, uh, which is supposed to help to stop the uh, massive hole in the 2024 budget that the German government has of 17 billion euros. The uh, German coalition under Chancellor Olaf Scholz scrambling to get the money together and uh, has decided on this as one of the issues, but is facing a lot of pushback. 1,700 tractors descended on uh, Berlin's iconic Brandenburg Gate Honking and chanting could be heard all over the city center, and the farmers, they are not happy. Uh, some of the protests have actually degenerated into quite some violent protests 
also. And the farmers are saying, essentially, you are bleeding us dry. And many small farmers would be hurt the most by this tax hike. Um, and uh, and of course, uh, some of the some of the regular supporters of these type of measures have voiced the opinion that the farmers should essentially just get over themselves. Uh, of one of which being uh, Greenpeace. Greenpeace says in a statement that farmers have benefited uh, for all too long from agricultural subsidies and that they haven't helped enough in this in the ecological transition and thus should be paying more. Uh, and uh, farmers hitting back uh, by saying that uh, a lot of the agricultural regulations that have been put on the sector in the last few years already are supposed to uh, aid this ecological transition, and there's only so much that farmers can take. Now, it's of course on the German government to make the decision on what to actually do. Uh, Interestingly, the agricultural minister from the Green Party, Jim Özdemir, uh, has said that he is on the farmer's side, which is all a bit odd because he is in the coalition that is raising the taxes. Uh, and so has FTP, uh, Liberal, Finance Minister Christian Lindner. So it seems to be only the Social Democrats who seem to support this measure, which is ultimately why the German government just last week decided to reverse it uh, and, and well, essentially suggest a compromise solution that will uh, not increase taxes on agricultural Machinery, but will phase out the uh, the, the tax uh, uh, exemption on diesel uh, over the next few years, in order to give the farmers more um, uh, more of a head start, more of a leeway in order to adapt the uh, their um, their products and and their machinery. Uh, the uh, issue for the farmers, however, is not resolved. The farmers continue to protest, uh, even as this podcast episode will air, and say that all the measures that were suggested should be scrapped. And they say that even if the, the, the diesel exemption is phased out, even over the next few years, they will just not have the availability of alternatives. If you just look at the uh, the price of an electric tractor, this, which is something that is available, uh, but comes easily at double the price point of the current used tractors using diesel. So it's, uh, for many farmers, just not an affordable uh, option. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the German government came out with a measure of trying to subsidize those, those tractors or at least uh, suggest subsidizing subsidized loans um, but for the moment it seems that the German government says issue uh, is closed we are done here uh, any further protests not necessary we'll see how it develops and because I also wanted to start the year with a quirky uh, little story we have dutchnews.nl uh, reporting Amsterdam will uh, ask cat owners to give their pet a bell It says, quote, Amsterdam is planning to ask cat owners to hang a bell or collar around their pets' necks when they go outside to warn birds and other wildlife about their presence. The proposal is contained in a plan for ensuring the capital remains an animal-friendly city that is currently being discussed by officials. The cat, officials say, is one of the few animals that is allowed to roam the city unsupervised despite posing a danger to birds in particular. According to researchers at Wageningen University, domestic cats kill some 18 million birds a year. This comes also after previous suggestions by ecologists at uh, Tilburg University uh, who uh, suggested that uh, not only do they kill a lot of birds, they could also be a serious threat to some 370 species in the Netherlands. Not exactly sure how they came about that number and which species are included in that because that's quite a few. Um, for 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 those of you who are cat owners, that's quite a few. Uh, and also the suggestions there might be a curfew for cats. On implementation, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. 
um, because uh, for all of those uh, who have cats, it's not uh, a pet you can just call back whenever you want. It just kind of has your, has its own will. Um, but uh, but that's going to be left over for the uh, for the people writing tickets for the cats, I assume, which will be a new uh, bureaucracy the uh, Amsterdam City Council will have to create in order to implement this measure. Uh, quirky little news, uh, I think, uh, probably ultimately pretty pointless. Um, I mean, we can decide to just not have any cats whatsoever, uh, which is probably not very popular, um, or we just create the, the, the spaces for, for birds to, to thrive, um, in in specific places, I don't think it's necessarily unreasonable for specific public parks to say we're gonna we're gonna have the the the, the, the sort of like the, the wires around the around the park so that you know we try and prevent as many cats from entering so that birds know that they have a safe harbor there. Uh, I think that's not that's not totally unreasonable, but I think just regulating a species that is known for its independence is going to be rather difficult. But let's move to the interview of the week. We have Peter Klepper, editor-in-chief at the Brussels Report, uh, who's telling us more about his outlook for 2024, uh, the European elections, and which are the big legislative agendas that are going to be most important once we have a new European Commission in September. Happy New Year to all the listeners, and we are back with uh, Peter Klepper, the editor-in-chief of the Brussels Report, and uh, you've heard him many times here on the podcast, uh, and uh, he has some things to say about the outlook for 2024. But before we get to that, first off, Peter, Happy New Year, and how's it going? Thank you, and uh, Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. Uh, Everything is all right. Uh, We just had a a big announcement that uh, Charlie Michel uh, is going to step down, you know, a, a bit earlier than uh, than planned. Uh, so this is sort of uh, what uh, has kicked off the new uh, uh, political year in Europe at the EU level. Yeah, I mean, you as a Belgian should be particularly interested in this one. So Charles Michel is uh, for for those of you, for those of the listeners who don't know, uh, the president of the of the European Council and has been for a while, and he will now lead the list of the uh, of the liberals uh, for the European uh, elections. Uh, why him? Are the liberals doing that badly in Belgium? And do they need a strong person, a former prime minister and former council president to be able to get enough votes? Is that what it is? Actually, um, they had too many candidates uh, because the European commissioner for Belgium, uh, Didier Reinders, is also from the Francophone Liberal Party. And he was quite keen to be the number one on the list uh, for the European Parliament elections. Uh, But in the end, uh, Charles Michel prevailed. Uh, However, the complication is that because he will step down, uh, you know, uh, prematurely and not uh, stay on until the end of 2024 as uh, chairman of the uh, sort of uh, the it's called the European Council. So the the meeting of uh, European government leaders. Because of that, uh, the um, the government uh, leader of the country uh, that is chairing the EU uh, in sort of the context of the rotating council presidency uh, is supposed to take over then. Now, um, that's going to be Hungary from July 2024 on. And uh, so this is the story that then is being presented that, oh, Charlie Michel, uh, who has always said that he is such a... Um, uh, a big supporter of the EU project is basically uh, just in order to have a job after he uh, like uh, is stepping down, is leaving the EU in the hands of Viktor Orban. 
which is of course all a little uh, exaggerated because you know um, as we all know the you know uh, business goes on whether Belgium, Hungary or Spain is chairing the EU Council, it doesn't matter all that much. It matters a little bit, to be fair, um, whether, you know, we have Charles Michel or somebody else chairing also doesn't matter all that much. It does matter a little bit. Um, so so they make a big fuss out of, of these things, but sort of I think it's quite amusing uh, to follow that political circus. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of agenda setting that is done by these rotating presidencies. And sometimes they get to pick and choose in terms of which legislation they think should be pushed to the forefront and try to mediate. But honestly, since it's just a six month period, um, usually on that legislative agenda, if the commission screwed it up, then trying to blame an individual member state for not getting not getting it pushed through is not necessarily uh, uh, always fair. Uh, before we get to some of the some of the topics that are going to be groundbreaking this year, uh, you've been running Brussels report now for a while. Can you tell Can you tell the listeners a bit more of the, who, who might not have heard about it? Sort of, you know, what does Brussels report do? What do you guys cover? Sure. Uh, so it's a website uh, covering EU politics. Um, it's mostly uh, a forum for opinion pieces and uh, analysis. Once in a while, there's some news. Uh, there's a podcast as well. Um, um, we will have a, a, a ranking of members of European Parliament coming up. I'm working on that at the moment. Uh, so this will basically rank uh, MEPs according to how uh, friendly they are to free market uh, policy, uh, according to how critical they are uh, towards excessive centralization of power. Uh, so if you, um, it's basically based on um, a couple of 20 votes, maybe 40 votes if I use the previous edition and merge them together. And uh, if you vote the right way, you get uh, plus one. If you vote the wrong way, you get minus one. And uh, if you don't vote or you abstain, you get um, you get zero points. So uh, when I did that ranking first in 2021, then I think about 150 out of the 700 uh, MEPs uh, they were in the in the positive, most were in the negative, which, which gives you an idea. And and I think really uh, I wasn't putting my bar very high. Um, like there was one vote on the conference on the future of Europe, uh, which was some kind of a conference, um, you know, pushed for at the EU level, some kind of a, you know, a brainstorming exercise, really nothing more than that at a very high cost. And, and, and there was a resolution requiring MEPs to vote on whether they thought that uh, this uh, conference should be financially transparent, yes or no. Uh, and a majority, believe it or not, uh, voted uh, against the resolution. Now, of course, it's a bit silly. Uh, I think the resolution was also submitted by the far right. Uh, but then I think it's a bit childish. It's not because the far right or the far left submits a rev resolution, which makes sense that you should uh, vote against that. So this is the level of uh, politics really in the, in the European Parliament. Um, yeah, and, and um, despite the fact that I think... Uh, like it's hard to speak too positively about that place. Uh, the institution has a lot of power. Um, they can really uh, influence the EU decision-making process. Of course, the European Commission has even more power. Uh, at the end of the day, when they decide to put something on the rails, then it's very hard to you know get rid of it, even for 
national governments. That's part of the problem that in the EU supranational level, that at, uh, at this bureaucratic level, uh, non-elected officials um, have so much to say, but also um, directly elected members of European Parliament have, have a lot to say. And in itself, you know, it makes sense. Uh, the idea of the European Parliament, I think, was not so bad. It was to have, a, you know, um, a group of uh, politicians that were dire- directly elected, uh, scrutinized uh, the EU machine, so to speak. But in practice, it works very differently. It's not really a check on the machine. It's more like, uh, you know, um, it's uh, it's an institution that fires up the machine uh, that is... Uh, uh, constantly telling the European Commission to spend more, to regulate more. Uh, it's like if you would have a, um, in a company, so, sort of a, a board of, of shareholders uh, urging the CEO to waste more money every year. It would be very strange, right? But that's, that's how it goes at the EU level. I mean, as problematic as, problematic as the European Commission is, the, the, uh, the, the European Parliament thinks that it does not go far enough in expanding its powers and regulating uh, spending, and it's really out of uh, out of control. And then what we've seen with Qatar Gate, eh, the scandal which revealed that countries like Qatar, but also Morocco, uh, or at least as the accusation that they would be paying a lot of money to MEPs. Eh? We we saw MEPs and their families members caught with uh, bags of cash. Um, so so. Uh, I think that tells you that the institution that is supposed to serve as a watchdog uh, is not very accountable itself. And to make matters worse, over the last year, so this scandal broke uh, in December 2022, so now we're January 2024, um, the institution, the European Parliament, has not been uh, introducing sufficient measures you know, to, um, to to prevent this from happening again, according to the European Ombudsman, which is some kind of a, a, a an independent institution within the EU machinery, um, there is still not a sufficient uh, oversight and uh, MEPs are their own uh, judge. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's all... That's all going to get a lot more attention when people look at the, you know... European Parliament elections, which are going to take place in June. Um, and uh, it's going to be hard to avoid discussions about Qatargate. So people are going to say, OK, so you are supposed to keep this European Commission and this um, legislative um, process in check. But um, how accountable are you, really? We're definitely going to be looking at... A wholly different situation than the last European elections. And the last European elections were in 2019. When you think back, that feels like a very long time ago. This is before COVID. This is before the war in Ukraine. This is before uh, uh, discussions over uh, pandemic treaties and recovery funds. And, you know, a lot of, we've broken with a lot of the um, things that we thought were norms. There was a, there was not a situation in 2019 where the, Prime Minister of the Netherlands was going to agree to common EU debt obligations. But now we have a situation where that is very much the case, and we actually have a common debt obligation as as the European Union. Um, We see some predictions already as to what the next European Parliament could look like, Um, definitely suggesting a shift towards the right. Do you think 
a lot of that may change have the elections that we've seen in the in you know in the last few months in individual member states also regions of member states been indicative of that or do you think that it's really too early to tell at this point look already last time around people have forgotten that um Ursula von der Leyen needed some votes of um you could say populist forces uh, anti-establishment forces for what it's worth controversial term or or um to, to you know to be endorsed in the European Parliament. Uh, yes, there has been a Ursula coalition, which is the EPP, Christian Democrats more or less, Social Democrats and centrists. I don't like to call them liberals all day or renew. Um, but because so many of them were hard to trust, um, there were some backroom deals whereby uh, Orban and um, the Polish government party, PiS, which is supposed to be a uh, danger to the, to the rule of law and everything, according to the, you know, the mainstream, you could say. But they relied on them to get Ursula in power, right? So even um, in 2019... They already did that. They probably did not necessarily have to work with them, but just to be on the safe side. Some concessions were probably made, which is why they ended up voting for for von der Leyen. Um, I mean, now, indeed, as you mentioned, the opinion polls indicate that the Greens are going to get hammered, which I find very good. Um, But... Also, then, indeed, some anti-establishment forces. Some of them are less than savory. Um, will will do well, and uh, indeed, that will increase in theory their influ- influence. Um, so the question is, by how much, right? At the end of the day, EPP, SND, the Greens, and Renew together, sort of the the mainstream. Um, they, I'm, I'm pretty sure they can, you know, muster a majority for von der Leyen or whoever is uh, going to be the candidate to become commission president. But I think it's likely going to be von der Leyen again. Um, but the fact that you have, of course, a, such a signal from voters will, I think, politically put some pressure um, to change the content and I think mostly in a good way you could already you can already see that the EPP eh, is uh, abandoning a lot of the green orthodoxy uh, that's good I mean they were not on board with phasing out um, you know uh, petrol cars by 2035 uh, they were also hostile to the nature restoration law I mean In the end, they went along to a degree with some tinkering. But um, I think broadly, I mean, we can see a positive evolution. We we can see it in other countries as well in the UK uh, that, um, you know, sort of this uh, um, mindset of like trying to protect the environment through top-down control, centralized planning, that this is slowly but surely, um, you know, uh, becoming more controversial. 
it surprised me how how slow it goes because if you look at it it's 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 very problematic i mean at the moment um we are issuing regulations in europe which is banning uh, or basically phasing out from a certain date which already is having an effect now uh com- cars with a combustion engine while at the same time we're subsidizing electric vehicles and i don't have to explain to you that tesla is an american company and that byd build your dream is a chinese uh company of evs now in itself there's nothing wrong with evs actually they existed more than 100 years ago already uh, and then were you know deemed not efficient for many reasons um so let's let a thousand flowers bloom and um, let's have fair competition. But of course, this kind of top-down technocratic, um, you know, cherry picking on uh, what's going to be the next desirable technology for cars. I mean, obviously, that's that's going to go wrong. It's already go, going wrong. I just saw that in the UK and I think it's not so much different here. Uh, less electric cars were sold um over the last year as compared to the year before so so um in my own country in belgium there is sort of a let's say a tax um, a tax benefit to having evs for companies so that's why it's mostly companies company cars that are evs um and again you know maybe uh, this will turn out to be the superior technology but i think it's highly undesirable to have this kind of uh, um, you know, uh, disrespect for what what is called tech neutrality, the idea that policymakers should not try to pick the desirable technology. We see similar problems with, um, let's say, electricity generation, where the EU Commission, even if in theory it's legally obliged to promote nuclear power, has been actively trying to obstruct uh, nuclear power. Also, that has changed. Even the European Parliament... Uh, has come out in favor of nuclear as a potential solution to reduce CO2 emission and uh, to um, uh, yeah to to serve as a reliable um, bedrock of the electricity grid um, and and in Germany is uh, let's say behind <laughs> in Germany we could see uh, decisions to phase out nuclear power. And then in order to um, to make up for that, we see that the country is uh, is clearing villages uh, to make way for large scale lignite, um, um, you know, uh, like lignite exploitation uh, to um, to to uh, to provide for electricity generation. And, and, and this is, of course, not something that is known to be good for the environment. Uh, so, so it's just embarrassing. Uh, it's not surprising that the, um, the coalition of Schultz is, is, uh, is doing so badly in the opinion polls. Um, it's, it's puzzling that um, they continue to go along to a degree, at least with the green orthodoxy. Um, but anyway, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, this is all... I think changing.
Yeah, you, you, you mentioned a lot of pushback against many of the green policies, and we've seen that uh, with the EPP also changing its uh, its uh, you know its language on a lot of the farm reform policies. Now, coining itself as the uh, the party of farmers and really reversing a lot of the uh, lot of its previous positions that they initially said yes to uh, under under a commission president of of their uh, of their party. Now, my thing is this, and we have about uh, we have about three minutes left here on the clock. So I wanted to ask you this: You mentioned a lot of the things that, with a more right-leaning European Parliament, we would not be getting. But let's look forward, because my my issue with the the right of centre uh, that I see is that they tell us a lot of things they're against, but I have a bit of a tr- I have some trouble understanding some of the things that they're for. What? Like, if we had to identify some of those cornerstones, are we going to get the type of right-wing Reaganites that are going to uh, embark on the journey of actually getting more free trade deals done, which is something that this commission was supposed to do and got like almost none done whatsoever? Are we actually going to see any progress? Or is that parliament, if it schemes together a majority on the right, just trying to be undoing what has happened over the last five years? What is it going to be? Well, the, the problem with uh, all those uh, right-wing parties is that many of them were not right-wing at all uh, when when um, when you're looking at their economic points of view. I mean, they are social democrats like the rest of them. Look at, for example, at uh, Giorgia Meloni in Italy. She's a very moderate social democrat when it comes to economic policies. She wants more transfers. I mean, even um, even when it comes to migration, which is supposed to be her her top priority and whatnot, I haven't seen a lot of change there. Um, you would expect her to at least look at the you know Australian model, which has proven to to bring some order in the uh, migration um, uh, flows by telling people you can apply for asylum, but you can only enter the territory after you get a yes. Well, actually, in Australia, it's a bit more complicated. Now, we don't see those things being pushed from Italy. We see it coming from Germany, of all places, with the the Christian Democrats there endorsing it, and even the governing um, SPD of Scholz looking at it. Uh, So... um, yeah, a lot of these right-wing populist parties are really anti-system parties. They are they are serving to uh, to you know to offer a um, um, you know an, an al- they, they 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 are offering voters the opportunity to 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 give the establishment a good um, a good beating, uh, but. Um, yeah, they're typically not. Uh, they don't typically don't have a coherent uh, ideology. Um, certainly in economics, they are not right wing. Uh, and as I mentioned, even on on migration, they're not even looking at what I consider to be successful right wing solutions. That's how intellectually thin, uh, sadly, I think they uh, they are. Um, and um, and that's why I think uh, their effect is going to be all in all quite uh, limited. Their influence is all is all in all, um, yeah, it's going to be quite modest. I think. 
then we know uh, how we should look at uh, uh, whatever happens past the election. We should be looking at what is not happening uh, positively rather than uh, uh, much of w what is happening, if, if anything at all. Uh, Peter, where can people find you on the social medias, uh, you and Brussels Report? Well, um, so... If you go to brusselsreport.eu, that's where you can find uh, the website. And uh, we also have a Twitter page, uh, which is Brussels underscore uh, report. And my own uh, Twitter handle is uh, just my name, uh, Peter Kleppe. I'm sure you can link to it so people can, uh, can find it back. Well, I see you are still loyal to the name Twitter. Uh, haven't switched over to X just yet. <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. as much as I support uh, Elon and his project, of course. Uh. Well, Peter, in any case, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. And that is the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Peter lined out, you could follow Brussels Report and himself on uh, X. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice. C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, and I'll see you Thursday. Thursday.